Well, amen and amen. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21. As you're doing that, just a quick reminder of where we are kind of going or where we're coming from as a church. Um, we are, have been kind of going through what we call kind of church membership and uh, in part, you know, there's been just a lot going on this past couple of years, especially a year and a half, and it, I think it's raised a lot of questions to what is the church, what is the place of the church, what should we be about as a church, and so uh, start, if just a few weeks ago, we started in kind of on an exhaustive uh, membership class, so to speak, and instead of making a class out of it for three weeks, as we have normally done, we are just making it a sermon series, uh, a sermon series by with chance... <laughs> That won't actually end until uh, late January, so um, we're going to kind of slow it down. There'll be plenty of time. I'm going to uh, just to give you a little precursor of things to come. Even at the end of service today, and as well as next week, we're going to actually have a time of Q and A as well. Um, because normally what we do in these kind of these kind of courses is we want to make sure that you have an opportunity to ask questions. And so we're going to have that opportunity to ask questions. We're going to pull that little bench out here, and we're just going to open it up to you. And someone there'll be a couple people going around with a mic, and so they'll be able to answer or, or field any questions that you may have. Because guess what? If you have a question, it's about 100% chance that uh, others have the same question that you're thinking as well. So... Anyways, by that, you should already be in Ephesians chapter 5. Real quickly, we started out as to given definition as to what is the church, and then we went specifically into the vision of IBC as well as the mission of IBC, and this morning we are going to be talking about church membership, specifically what it is and why we feel that we should be pursuing church membership. In Ephesians five twenty one. And following, Paul says these words. Give you context here real quick. Paul's already saying, don't be consumed with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on to give explanation as to how we are filled with the Spirit. And then he continues on in verse 21, and he says, and furthermore, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he goes into explanation as to what he means by that. Verse 22 For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband, it is, for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his, of his body, the church. So as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in all things. For husbands, this means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present, to present her to himself as a glorious church, a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she, she will be holy and without fault in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. 
So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, one of the privileges I have as a pastor, um, among many things, is to I get the opportunity to officiate marriages or weddings, the, the union between a man and a woman before ultimately God as the primary witness, but also uh, to other people as present witnesses. And this passage that I just read for you is uh, a passage that I commonly refer to, not all the time, but usually I refer to this, this passage, and the irony of it all is like this message is usually heard more by those in attendance than it is by the people standing in front of me getting married, because at that point uh, in this whole coming together, they're not really hearing a whole lot but just waiting to say, I do. And so, um, but that being said, it's an opportunity to kind of bear witness to the witnesses, and that's also why we encourage premarital counseling as well, because we go through all these things prior to, because we know on the wedding day, it's just kind of, there's a, a lot of other things on both, the, both spouses' minds, and understandably so. But the Apostle Paul in this passage mentions something very uh, interesting. He, he mentions something in his exhortation to both husbands and wives, I believe that is very profound and that will kind of help segue or introduce where we are going this morning. He says that marriage, the marriage union is a mystery. And that union in the context of marriage is really an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In other words, marriage is one of the clearest ways that, that you and I can understand our relationship with Jesus Christ. Mar- marriage helps us better understand the kind of covenant relationship that God has initiated with us and established with us. And what I'd like to propose to you this morning, based on my own study and observation of Scripture, is that the way you and I better understand the kind of devotion or the the kind of commitment that we are to pursue with one another, that we are to share with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, is through the covenant commitment of church membership. So whereas Paul says, marriage is a context in which we better understand our relationship with Christ, I believe that church membership is a context in which we better understand our relationship with one another. Now you might ask this question because I'm not sure exactly where everybody's at on this topic of church membership, but you might ask, why church membership? Is church membership even in the Bible? Let me answer that very succinctly, no. It's not. If you were to scour the scriptures and to find a verse that talks about church membership, you won't find a single verse because in the script, you know, it's nowhere found in the scriptures. There's no definition, let alone there's no mention of this phrase or topic called church membership. Then it sort of begs the question probably in your mind, then why in the world are we talking about it? Why in the world are we gonna spend time talking about something that isn't even explicitly mentioned in scripture? In a sense, what biblical basis do I have to talk about things that aren't actually mentioned in the Bible? Thank you for asking. (laughs) I think we need to evaluate or consider church membership sort of like the doctrine of the Trinity. 
You know, the word Trinity is also never mentioned in Scripture either, right? If you were to scour the Scriptures to find a verse that mentions Trinity or triunity, you'll never see one because it doesn't exist. Yet at the same time, if you're a student of Scripture, you'll also see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are very clearly talked about, and therefore we have this doctrine called Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, because it's explicit, or it's very much implied, even though it's not explicitly mentioned as the word Trinity. And I believe the same also applies, the same truth or comparison also applies when we think about church membership. Though church membership is never mentioned explicitly in Scripture, you will see it throughout the pages of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. So what I want us to do for just a moment is I want us to kind of go back in time for a second. I don't know if you ever grew up with uh, Adventures in Odyssey by Focus on the Family. I did as a kid. Some of my kids are kind of doing that now in that stage. Adventures in Odyssey, just if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's just this fictitious story it's to kind of bring about uh, biblical truth and so it's kind of in modern day times and there's place this place called Wits Inn. Mr. Whitaker is kind of this guy who has this little kind of community center with games and food and soda fountain and ice cream parlor and and he also is an inventor and he invented this thing called the time machine and kids can actually go into this time machine and get transported back into these biblical times and they can in a sense be a, a character in these Bible stories so that they can better understand what has happened in these biblical accounts. So in a kind of proverbial sort of way, let's jump into Wit's time machine and let's jump back into Acts chapter two when the church first began and let's observe how the church related to one another. In Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42, first of all, just to give you a little context, Peter has just given his first bold, empowered, spirit-empowered sermon. And by the way, uh, if, I don't know, he had quite the response. You would think almost that when Peter finally stands up and he declares the truth, even calls out his own countrymen, his own people, the Jews, and saying, and you are the one who put Jesus on the cross, you would think they would say, stone him, put him to death, we want nothing to do with this guy, because that's what they did with Jesus. But actually the opposite happened. They said, or they asked, what must I do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. They were humbled by the truth because the spirit was very much at work and many thousands were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And then we get this little snapshot in Acts 2 starting in verse 42 of what the church was like in its beginning stages. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and and belongings and, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
I know for many of us, this is not the first time we've been introduced to this passage, right? No doubt you've probably read this passage many times over. No doubt you've heard sermons preached on this very passage. What I want to point out for us this morning uh, is not so much what these followers of Jesus did, what the, the first church, in a sense, did. I want to really highlight or kind of draw attention to the kind of devotion that they shared with one another. You notice that when people came to faith in Jesus Christ, their, their complete uh, priorities were radically transformed. You see, when, when people came to faith in Christ, the, the, their whole lives were oriented around other believers, especially members of their church. In other words, whereas they once lived with a certain set of values and priorities and rhythm in life, when they came to faith in Christ, everything changed. Now, it doesn't mean they stopped working. It doesn't mean they didn't, they, you know, all of a sudden didn't have a family or anything. Obviously, some things were consistent, but how they pursued their normal life was influenced greatly by their new identity in Christ and therefore realizing that now we're brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, when you think about their identity, we see from a fourth century Roman historian he, he, made, he made observations, a famous historian made observations about these Christians. He gives one account that I thought was very interesting. He gives an account about a Christian who was actually getting ready to be tortured, uh, and, and he couldn't, he was kind of taken back, he says, by how this Christian responded. I quote, with such determination did he stand up to their onslaughts that he would not tell them his own name, race, and birthplace, or whether he was even a slave or free. To every question he replied in Latin, I am a Christian. This he proclaimed over and over again instead of the name and birthplace and nationality and everything else, and not another word did the heathen hear from him. When I came across this little anecdote I couldn't but help but just think about, wow, what an incredible example of what it means that when we come to faith in Christ, how everything in our lives, especially our identity, completely changes. You see, here was an average citizen who was either slave or free. He had a name. He had an origin. He had an ethnicity. He had a nationality. He had all these things that kind of defined or labeled him, and we like to make much of that in our culture today, right? We love to kind of make, put labels on everybody today, and yet when someone came to faith in Christ, there was only one identity that trumped all identities, and guess what it was? I am a Christian. Everything else takes a kind of a, a substandard role to these, this primary identity as Christian. And though we live in this world, what it means to be Christian is that we are no longer belonging to this world. We are no longer primarily citizens in this world. Yes, we are citizens, obviously. But now, as brothers and sisters in Christ who are saved by the blood of the Lamb, we are now Christians. Followers of Jesus, 
whose citizenship is in another place. Whose identity is no longer am I United States of America or whatever nationality you want to put on. Nothing wrong with having those labels so long as they have their proper place. But as those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, we are now citizens of heaven. And God is our King. Jesus is Lord of all. So we live for a different home. We live for a different, with a different master. Our focus and our attention is always what awaits us that we begin to begin to experience now. But because we live in a very individualistic Western culture where autonomy is valued over even family and groups, I believe a formal commitment to one's local church through church membership becomes extremely necessary. So what does it mean, or what is church membership? If you were to do a Google search on this, there'd be a variety of, uh, in, there'd be a variety of examples, definitions given, people giving their input, given their descriptions. I think Jonathan Lehman, uh, who, writes, who writes for Nine Marks, he gives, a, 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 I think, a, a helpful definition uh, in a simplistic way, though I'll unpack it because sometimes people's wording is not always the clearest. But he says this in regards to church membership. Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church, which is people, and a Christian. So first and foremost, Church membership is a formal relationship, much like when, when two people exchange vows and they, become, they enter into this union called marriage, there's a formality to it. It's not just I have the heart and spirit and desire for it, but there's a formal process. There's a celebration and there's a, there's a, a ceremony to kind of make it official and formal. And in the same way, church membership is really a formal relationship between a local church and an individual Christian, and here's the purpose in it. This formal relationship is characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship. Let me say that again. This formal relationship is characterized by a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship, as well as it's the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. What Jonathan Lehman is saying here is there's that basically a reciprocal agreement in church membership. A, a local church body promises to give oversight to an individual's discipleship, an individual formally submits to his or her discipleship in the service and in the authority of, its, of this body and its leaders. In part, the, the discipleship oversight formally affirms one's individual profession of faith and baptism as credible. In other words, it's very easy in a very individualistic culture to say, I'm a Christian because I say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I've decided that that's what I am. But in the context of the church, 
that God has instituted from the very beginning to be a Christian is not only something you choose individually, but it's also something that is affirmed. It's a truth that is affirmed about you. In other words, we can deceive ourselves. Paul says it, don't, be, don't think of yourself too highly or don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, right, in Romans 12, 3? Because guess what? We do that a lot. I have another funny story I won't go into right now. This past week when I was doing a little study and eavesdropping on the conversation on two ladies in the coffee shop, and I was like, wow, they think very highly of themselves. And they were even being kind of forthcoming with their like, well, you know, I know I do bad things and I know I'm drinking a couple beers right now and getting ready to drive away, but it's not as bad as some other things that other people don't do or do do. And so it's like, huh, don't we always do that? Isn't it so easy to think, I know I do bad things, but not as bad as all my neighbors. You see, you and I, we need the affirmation from a local church family. We can say that, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but sometimes what we need to hear is not necessarily what we want to hear. And sometimes what we need to hear and I'm just, this is kind of the, maybe the, the negative side of it, is going, yeah, I don't think you're living a life that is consistent with what the Bible says is Christian. Or on a more positive note, some of us can be discouraged and going, man, I just don't know if the Lord loves me. I don't even know if I'm saved. I, I mean, I believe in all these things, but I'm just struggling. And we get the church family to come around going, I see the evidence of the Spirit of God in you. Not that it's all up on one person, but you see the evidence. And so on one hand, in and of ourselves, we can be deceived and be thinking too highly of ourselves or being depressed and not knowing if we are actually saved. And yet the church family comes around one another and says, I know that you're saved. Here's the evidence, here's the work, here's the fruit that is born by what I observe and see firsthand. Or guess what? It's time to get your rear in gear. What you say and how you live seem to be in contradiction with one another. And so church membership is really a reciprocal relationship where the church takes both responsibility for you and you take responsibility for the church. And by the way, this is a really good thing. It's good that we come under the mutual submission of one another because we need one another. We need people looking after our best interest. We need one another to look after our spiritual well-being. We need one another to look after our physical and emotional and relational and, and every, all the little old's well-being. You know why? Because we're fickle people. And we have an enemy and we live in, a, in, a, in a, a world that is cursed by sin and we have a weak flesh. We need one another. Church membership is the, the formal commitment in which we come together so that we are not isolated because guess what? Satan loves when we're isolated. If you look on the African plane, not that you've done that recently, but if you were to do that, maybe turn on planet Earth, you know, it seems like there's always safety when the group stands together and guess how lions like to pick off? They're always trying to isolate. And as soon as they isolate that gazelle, guess what? 
It's, done. it's lunch. Satan likes to do the same thing. He likes us to, he wants us to pursue our walk of faith in isolation or on the fringe or not really plugged in to the body of Christ because that's where he does his greatest work. And so church membership isn't really an opportunity. It's an opportunity to come together and go, wow, we get to experience, we get to share, we get to, to be, we get to be the church together, to love and to serve one another, to fulfill all the one another's that we see in scripture so that we might grow in a healthy way in Christ Jesus and bring glory to our great God. I think it's also, just as a, a way of side note, church membership is uh, kind of, this whole idea addresses the distinction that, we, that it kind of exists between Christians who belong to another church with Christians who belong to, for example, this church. What I mean by that is this, though believers in Jesus Christ ultimately belong to God, and to one another in some sense, there is a difference between the commitment that you and I should have as local, a local church family with those who, than those who belong to another church family. Again, what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying this doesn't mean we don't care about someone else's spiritual well-being. That's not what we're saying. Just because they belong to another church doesn't mean that we are not involved. Doesn't mean that we can't be partnered with. It doesn't mean that we can't prioritize Christians from other churches. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, that it does, there is an expectation on both you and me and the oversight that we receive from our local church and it's gonna be different than those who belong, who have in a sense entered into a formal relationship with another local church. Yes, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we're all part of the universal church. But by the way, the universal church does not assemble until the first time in Revelation chapter seven. And until the universal church assembles, we meet, we assemble as a local church until the redemption of all things. So let me ask this question. What is the implied expectation of church membership? Yes, we understand that it's a reciprocal relationship between the individual Christian and the church body and its leadership. But what is the implied expectation of church membership? Again, just to reiterate this fact, there is no command in scripture, obviously, to, to become a member of a local church because even church membership isn't even mentioned. But I would like to also assert and say this, there is also no such thing as a Christian who is not an active part of a local church. If you were to observe the, the, first test, the first century church, there was no such thing as being a Christian who was also not already a part, fully a part of a local church. Again, to quote Jonathan, Jonathan Lehman again, he says this, once you choose Christ, you choose his people too. It's a package deal. Choose the father and the son and you choose the whole family, which you do through the local church. In other words, he goes on to kind of argue that to be Christian is to be a part of a local church. No one gets saved and, and wanders around 
by himself or herself thinking about whether to join a church, people repent and are then baptized into the fellowship of a local church. So there's kind of this, this covenantal commitment that exists when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not only between you and God, but also between you and God's people. In church membership, we are really ultimately committing, vowing in a covenant way to God, but also to one another. To live our lives in a manner that is consistent with our profession of faith. To, to serve the church family in a manner laid out in the church covenant. Let me, let me just kind of put it in real simple terms. In a real sense, what church membership is acknowledging or affirming is this. You can count on me. I'm all in. That's what church membership is basically saying. You can count on me. I'm all in. I'm here. This is my church. I'm not vacillating about whether or not to commit. I'm here. I'm not hanging out on the fringe whether or not when I'm going to jump in. I'm not a potted plant wondering if I should get into the actual ground. I'm all in. I'm here to stay as God leads. We could make it even more poignant, I think, and even say that it affirms things like this, that church membership, this covenant that we engage in in church membership, it basically says, I'm not here just to point out problems that I see, but I'm here to be a solution to the problems that I see. Or we might even say, I'm not here so long as things seem to go my way. I'm here through thick and thin, or dare I say, much like the marriage context, for better or for worse. After all, that's the nature of a church, of a covenant, right? The very definition of a covenant is that a covenant is binding regardless of how flawed a church member or members are. A covenant is binding no matter how many issues you see or experience or are affected by in the church family. A covenant is binding only until the Lord releases you from that covenant. So if we can see, if we can observe, I believe clearly that uh, though it's not mentioned explicitly in Scripture, if we can see that church membership is very much written all over the page of scripture, in other words, this is the attitude, this is the kind or quality or the, the intensity of one's devotion with the body of Christ, then why do people resist the idea of church membership? Or why do people find it so difficult to accept this kind of commitment? I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but there's two that I'd like to kind of mention I think for some, membership is a difficult pill to swallow because I think of a misinformed view of the local church. You might recall from my my message last week about when I gave the the modern-day parable of the life-saving station, right? You see, the probability of churches becoming more of a club than a group of like-minded saints who are on divine mission is all too common, and if we are to think of, if we if we think of the church as merely a kind of a, a club to join, then it is also likely that we will have club-like expectations on the church, and in turn, I believe a distorted perspective of church membership. 
Tom Rainier, he, uh, he writes for Lifeway Books. He says this in regards to membership being viewed or their church being viewed as a club. He says, members, when they view the church as a club, become more, become more about receiving instead of giving, being served instead of serving, rights instead of responsibilities, and entitlements instead of sacrifices. In other words, when you think of the church like a club, when you think of it going like, well, here, do I want to join or do I not want to join? You kind of go, well, I give my dues. We might refer to that as the tithe. And therefore, what are you going to do for me and my family? But it's actually just the opposite. Because remember, the church is the gathering of God's people. And the local church is a, a formal relationship that exists between God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the role of the pastor and its leaders is to equip and edify and build you up to fulfill your ministry. Not for us to do your ministry for you. Not to provide every program under the sun for you. We're here to equip you so that you can fulfill the ministry that God has divinely commissioned you to fulfill. And we come together to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to build one another up, to edify one another, to pray for one another, to to help one another. Because guess what? We need it. And we need it constantly. We need it consistently. I think others may struggle with this concept or idea of church membership because it can... uh, well, let me just put it simply, because they don't like commitment. I think some people struggle with church membership because they don't like commitment. Again, to reference the marriage covenant that we've just been paralleling here, the acceptance rate among, uh, of marriage, especially in Western culture, as you well know, is on rapid decline. It used to be that when people were introduced, the next kind of step in that relationship was not only once they were introduced and go, wow, I kind of like this person. They start dating or maybe we even do this kind of courtship thing and eventually they become married. That's usually kind of the, how the flow used to be. Well, I would say now, as not because you need convincing of this, but now the trend or the pattern is that when people are introduced, they begin dating and then the next step is they move in together into this cohabitating relationship and then maybe eventually they get married but that'll all be somewhat determined after they play house for a while to see if this thing is really going to work out. Now why is this the trend in marriage? Again, a number of reasons could be offered here. I think one of the common reasons is when people see such uh, a devastation that takes place when divorce happens, a lot of people are kind of grow up in a divorced household and they're like, I want nothing to do with that. I saw the ugliness of that. I saw how hard that was. I saw how it, it just, you know, the, the anger and the strife that existed. I wouldn't want to put myself, let alone my own family, in that situation. So let's just kind of forego all that nightmare. So marriage is not seen as an opportunity. It's not viewed as a, a protective and loving and intimate union. It's really going, I got to commit to something. It's just going to be a mess if it dissolves. But I believe another reason why the trend of kind of the, the moving away from being married and more just a cohabitating relationship exists is because of a decline in commitment. 
People like to keep options open. People don't like to feel locked in. Especially if you don't know how something's going to play out. You need that back door open and ready. Though I do need to qualify what I mean by commitment because on one hand you could say that people lack commitment and actually I would push back and say it's not really a lack of commitment. That's usually not the problem with commitment. Everyone has the same level of commitment much like everyone has the same amount of time in a day. The question is to what am I committed to? Or to whom am I committed to? See, no one has a commitment problem. The question is, in what way or to whom am I committed to most? And I would say that many people, especially in a very individualistic, autonomous culture, are very much committed to themselves before anybody or anything else. And I believe that the same trend applies in the church or about the church. And there's a growing number of Christians who are content with a, dare I say, a cohabitating relationship with the church, but never really wanting or being willing to commit. The idea that I should feel obligated to others and responsible for others and that I should submit, there's a four-letter word, to others and the church leadership runs contrary to the predominant way Westerners approach life. But remember, as people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you are a Christian. Yes, you might reside and live in America, but you are a Christian first. And I think it's important that we also remember that that we belong to Jesus first and that he is the head of, this, of his church. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority has been given to Jesus and Jesus gave the church the authority. And so while some, while some may say that I have the authority to conduct my life the way I want in the manner in which I want it, Christians must view life, especially in the relationship to the local church, as a submission to authority to the local church because that is the institute in which God has established until he comes. Remember, to be Christian is to belong to a church. Jesus died not just to save you so that you can spend eternity in heaven, that's true, and we celebrate that. But Jesus died and saved you to belong to the body of Christ. And until God's redemptive plan is accomplished, the way in which we belong to the body of Christ is through the context of a local church in which you enter into a covenant relationship that says, I'm all in. I'm all for you. I want you. I hope you know that you're, I want to know that you're all for me. I'm here for you. I'm here to bend over backwards for you. I'm here to bear burdens for you and with you. I'm here. I'm all in. Will you be all in with me? You see, the kind of intimacy and protection that exists in that kind of relationship is far deeper than something that says, well, I'm in so long as I determine I like it or I'm in so long as things go the way I, I want or hope. I'm in so long as you don't take me off. 
fact is, brothers and sisters, we belong to one another. We belong to one another. And Jesus died to save us from our sins and to free us from the enslaving power of sin so that you and I would be able to be united. Yes, to Christ first and foremost, but because we are united with Christ, we are therefore united with one another. And so we're brothers and sisters. We're family. There's a reason why I continually refer to this church and to you as family, because that's in fact what we are. And I pray that as we understand this idea of family in our maybe our biological context, I pray that we would even transpose that even more so and view one another as like, we're church family. We're going to spend eternity together. What's crazy to think about is that even in heaven, marriage will no longer be an, an issue. Marriage is a temporary context that God has established until we are finally and forever in the presence of God. We will always be brothers and sisters in Christ. That bond and that unity that we share begins now. And so my prayer for you and a prayer for all of us is that we could have this attitude and this mindset and that we would take even formal steps that would say, I'm in. I'm not hanging out in the fringe. I'm not just dabbling, but I'm in. And if this isn't the context for you to be all in, that's okay. Let us help you find a context in which you can be all in. Because to be a Christian and not to be a member, a devoted, covenanted commitment member of a local church is to live as a Christian that is outside God's expectation of you as a Christian. And you're not better because of it. And so I just pray that you would, I I wanted to kind of give information out to you and I wanted to plant seeds. I wanted to get the, the juices going and I wanted to basically say, So where do you stand? You know, Jesus died for this very purpose. He died, yes, to save us from our sins, as I mentioned before. But he also died to bring us together and to unite us into one family, into one body. And this is what he accomplished on the cross. Father, that is our declaration to you and that is our declaration to one another. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for reconciling us back to God. We are created to be in relationship with you and sin severed all of that. But because of you, Jesus, you brought us back into healthy, right relationship with God. So we celebrate you even now. 
And Father, we even celebrate the fact that because we are in right relationship with you, because we are in fellowship with you, then we also have fellowship with one another. Not just acquaintances, but we have a bond that we share with one another. May we celebrate and be devoted to that bond that we are Christian, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ for your glory, for your namesake. And may the world see that the church loves one another and is united on the things that matter for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.